This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi and welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show, how what's happening in your gut can affect your mental health. They took stool samples from depressed people and they transferred the microbiota into some germ-free rats and those rats became depressed. Yes. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm not. That's Very terrible sad. but fascinating. I know. <laughs> That's what we think too. And the anti-vaccination movement. Where did it come from and why did it begin? That's today on Think Health. But up first... I sort of liken it to going to see a tax accountant and asking them to fix your car. This is Rachel Dunlop, Honorary Research Fellow at Macquarie University. You know, it's just insane. People are experts for a reason and because these people are not trained in medicine or science, they just aren't able to discern necessarily what is good and what is bad. So there was a case earlier this year or last year where Pete Evans published a cookbook with some nutritionists and within that cookbook there was a recipe for a bone broth which is in keeping with his paleo diets. If you don't know who Pete Evans is, he's that guy from My Kitchen Rules. The other guy, not the French one. Five years from eating low carb or the paleo way or whatever you like to call it. I just like to call it food as medicine. My children are thriving. I'm thriving. A whole host of people that are adopting this, as you know, are thriving. So when I was asked to come... And, and experts chat, looked at that um, and they, they were really alarmed because they thought that the level of minerals and stuff in that could actually be dangerous to a baby. And so actually the book was never published by the publisher. They did eventually do an e-version. But... Um, Even more recently, he's made comments where he's been heavily criticised about sunscreen and made comments about sunscreen being poisonous. So, you know, the thing is, I wouldn't get my health advice from my mechanic, so why would you get it from a celebrity? They're simply just not experts. And so I know in this day and age people tend to be suspicious of experts. They tend to kind of not want to hear from people who are experts, but, you know, you could really be putting yourself at risk if you're not taking advice from people that know what they're talking about. Have you noticed that this form of sort of pseudo-health advice has been on the rise, and and why is that? Look, I think it has, and I think it's really exploded a few years ago when Web 2.0 sort of happened, which was when people could actually start contributing their own information to the web with the explosion of Twitter, of Facebook, you know, you can easily start a blog now. You don't even have to be very technically minded. So people can start putting their own content online. And that's a good thing, you know, because everyone should be able to access that technology. But the problem is that none of that stuff that's there is filtered or is, you know, checked for accuracy. So if you go to Google now and you typed in vaccination, for example, you're likely to get on the first page a lot of information that is misleading and potentially harmful. So this creates an issue where we have access to a massive amount of information and that's a blessing, but it's also a curse. 
I have a PhD in science and even I have to be careful about what I come across online because people use some, they can use techniques to actually mislead you so that it is sometimes very difficult to discern, you know, whether something is evidence-based or not. Rachel, why do you think people are shunning science and medicine and, um, you know, Googling their symptoms? Well, I think there's a couple of of things at play here. In terms of people using Google to look for medical advice, one of the reasons is simply that they're time poor, it's convenient, everyone has the internet in their pocket these days or access to it, it's discreet. You can run into the toilets at work at lunchtime and do a quick Google if you've got some medical problem that you don't wanna talk to someone about. But also people do distrust authority. And, you know, I think there's good reason for that. I mean, you can look at what's happening in the world now in politics. And if you were to tell me that I should trust the government anywhere in the world at the moment, I would just laugh at you and say you're crazy. Mm. So, you know, people are exercising scepticism, which I think is healthy. And why should you not exercise scepticism? You know, you shouldn't necessarily believe, you know, everything that someone tells you. Um but then you need to be able to check that what you're being told is wrong or not. And so this is where the problem comes in that I've just mentioned is that how do you discern that? Ultimately, it's up to you to, to discern between what's good and what's bad. And that's a problem. Tell me about Dr. Google's health checker. What, what is it and how does it work? Basically, the symptom checker and the health cards work together to filter search results to provide you with information that they deem to be medically accurate and scientifically based, as opposed to putting Pete Evans' website on the first hit on Google. Um, (laughs) And what they've done is the symptom checker is a feature of the Google app. So if you have a smartphone, you can go into the app and you can either type in your symptoms or you can speak your symptoms. And it will search a number of algorithms and it uses what it calls the knowledge tree. And the knowledge tree is something I don't fully understand because it's basically Google's algorithm, which, you know, they never really reveal to people and they change all the time. Mm -hmm. But it will pull up results for you of illnesses that match those particular symptoms. And in addition to that, it'll pull up on the right-hand side of your browser a little small image called a health card. Now, the health cards have been designed in consultation with doctors at Harvard Medical School and the Mayo Clinic in America. They describe over 900 different diseases from things like asthma, measles, and the flu. And they'll provide you basic information about the condition that those symptoms match, although whatever Google thinks matches. And they're really actually quite useful because they have three tabs. They have an about tab. So say it's the measles that comes up tells you about the measles, it'll tell you the symptoms that you'll have if you have the measles, and it will tell you about recommended treatments. And I've actually been welcomed by doctors in the US Mm -hmm. and cautiously by Australian doctors as well, because they do provide guidance, but importantly, they don't replace a face-to-face consultation with a doctor. And what happens if someone has a serious medical condition, but, uh, you know, the doctor Google doesn't actually pick it up? Well, you know, this is the problem. And I mean, I've tried this out myself. So I actually typed in to Google that I had a backache, I had fever and I had a headache. And it returns a number of possible illnesses, not just one. And it told me that I possibly had a cold, a flu, meningitis or yellow fever. (laughs) Could be anything. (laughs) I mean, these are quite broad ranging conditions, one of which is probably really quite serious and the other two are just, you know, have a cup of tea and go to bed. Clearly, you have to be able to exercise some scepticism and 
I would say out of those results, well, I have to exercise discretion and say, I probably don't have yellow fever because I haven't been somewhere where yellow fever is endemic. So, you know, you have to exercise discretion. But Google also warns that they want to avoid people sort of descending down a rabbit hole and becoming really paranoid and becoming a hypochondriac. Oh my God, I've got yellow fever. What am I going to do? So it's never, ever going to be a substitute for seeing a medical practitioner. Yeah. And I guess they can't prescribe medications as well. No, of course. And I think one of the things that we sort of tend to forget in Australia is that it's pretty easy to see a doctor in Australia compared to some other places in the world. And Google is a global company. And so this is going to be rolled out across the world. It's already being used in America, for example. And there are places where people just can't access doctors at all. They either can't afford it or they just don't have them. So, I mean, in the States, for example, it's $200 to pay to see a GP before you even have anything done. So, you know, this is also going to help people that don't have access to first world healthcare like we're very lucky to have in Australia. Are there privacy concerns? Google did start doing this particular feature because they had noticed that 1% of all global searches on Google are for healthcare information and medical advice. And so they are checking what people are searching. But if you are concerned about that just yourself, you can browse anonymously in Google. But, you know, whatever you put online, there's always a risk that it's going to be seen by somebody. Rachel Dunlop, Research Fellow in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Macquarie University, speaking to Leah Samaglu. Queensland Parliament is following New South Wales by introducing a bill that bans children from preschools and childcare centres unless they are immunised. But one mum is building quite a following for her argument that vaccinating a child is unnecessary. Well, the mother who was once against getting her children vaccinated now going on record encouraging other parents to go ahead and vaccinate their children. She wrote an article and it says, uh, learning the hard way. That vaccine has almost eliminated the types of pneumococcus that the vaccine targets. The debate of whether to vaccinate or not is one that continues to roll on. But where did it all begin? John Wardle is from the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and was just awarded a National Health and Medical Research Council Fellowship on Vaccine Hesitancy. John spoke to Leah Tsamoglu. Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Do you know how it began? Well, it's it's pretty much been around for as long as vaccination itself has been around. So, uh, you know, when Edward Jenner first proposed the treatment of vaccination for smallpox, for example, by taking essentially scrapings of, of cowpox off cow udders and then inoculating patients with that, that was received quite negatively by some people because it was quite a crude Mm -hmm. treatment, (laughs) as you can imagine. Some people were opposed to it. What really enforced it was when governments started to see the benefit of it and in many cases made it mandatory. And it actually really reinforced as a permanent movement when that mandatory vaccination came in. So the anti-vaccination movement itself has really has roots in what they call medical freedom. So it's really about taking the choice away from people. Since then, Generally, about one and a half to two percent of the population has always been anti-vaccination. You won't change yeah. their minds. Yeah. Um, the, the the opposition stays constant, and the reason for opposition tends to change. So they, you know, they will recreate narratives around that opposition. So it was about civil liberties and medical freedom. Then it mm-hmm. became about toxins. Then it became about autism. Then it became about all sorts of other. 
You did say, yeah, 1.5% to 2% of the population. Why does it feel like the anti-vax movement is sort of growing at the moment? The issue with something like vaccination is that the vast majority of the population supports it. It really is quite a mainstream level of support. So it's a mainstream idea. Uh, And when you are supportive of a idea that's pretty much generally accepted at a population level, you don't really see a lot of really zealous advocates for those Mm. mainstream positions. Anti-vaccinationists is the Maslow, uh, as a sociologist, that developed outrage factors. So, you know, anti-vaccinationists tend to be outraged by it enough to actually dominate the discussion around it. So... Um, so they're just louder. They're just louder than than, than, than the pro-vaccination lobbies tend to be, I guess. So, um, and in fact, most of the loud pro-vaccination advocates tend to be reacting to those loud anti-vaccination statements. Why do you think there is that distrust in our health professionals and mainstream pharmaceutical manufacturers? To be honest, a lot of it's quite deserved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, there, What's your there, opinion on it? Well, you know, there are a lot of mistakes that, that mainstream medical professionals make. I think yeah. the, the, um, the narrative that the medical community is on the make or trying to do harm to the population for their own benefit, I think is a bit bit far-fetched. Even doctors that are making mistakes clinically are usually trying to do the right thing. On that notion, just in the anti-vaccination community and the pro-vaccination communities, I think the decisions that most people are making around vaccination, they're doing because they're trying to do the best thing for their kids or uh, for other people's children. Sometimes they're misguided, and I think the anti-vaccination advocates are quite misguided. Sometimes they're quite passionate and aggressive in doing that, but um, I think the notion that someone's actually actively trying to harm children is not necessarily true. Distrust around government, pharmaceutical companies, you know, pharmaceutical companies do profiteer. I think it would be naive to suggest that they don't do that, but they also do a hell of a lot of good in the world as well. Most people that are actually doing the grunt work of developing vaccines, if you walk outside of an immunisation laboratory at eight or nine o'clock at night, you know, you still see people slaving away in the offices, you know, until midnight every night because they're passionate about that. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to make the world a better place. The pharmaceutical companies may be exploiting them as much as anyone yeah. else. Uh, but also, you know, life-saving drugs as we exist them today, it takes a lot of, a huge amount of infrastructure and a huge amount of money to develop a lot of life-saving drugs, many of which fail mm-hmm. um, after a while. So a lot of money gets wasted in those failures, but also there's a lot of money that gets put into success. So I think, I think people see the negative side of that and they don't balance it up with the positive side. So, you know, there are, when you go to hospital, your risk of developing a infection are quite high, but also hospitals do amazing things. You know, drug companies do profiteer, but they also develop drugs that a lot of us wouldn't be here today yeah, if it weren't exactly. for the existence of. So it's very easy to focus on the negative and ignore the positive. So I think that's, that's really that, that false balance is really where the, the issue comes. Now, you wrote in your article that's about to be published by You Magazine that the largest group of Australians that don't vaccinate aren't necessarily against vaccines. Could you explain what you mean by that? There's actually a, um, a researcher, uh, a Sydney-based researcher, who's one of the leading researchers around the sociology of vaccination called Julie Leask, who actually calls them the fence sitters. And she wrote a great article called Target the Fence Sitters. Uh, and most people are suspicious and, you know, discussion around things like vaccination is an unqualified good. If you're a parent, you should be questioning everything yeah. <laughs> you do with your child. The problem is often that these people don't get their questions answered by people in the public health community. Often they aren't able to ask those questions. If that discussion could occur, the arguments for vaccination are overwhelmingly positive. The 
uh, arguments against vaccination are quite underwhelming. That mm. the, the reality is that most people would be able to see the benefits um, and see the risks are actually quite overblown. But what often occurs is they want to ask those questions. They can't ask those questions. They look for someone who will answer those questions, and the anti-vaccination community are usually those people. And they're, uh, you know, Norman Swan was on the TV last week. You know, they're experts in search engine optimization. They're yeah. experts in using emotional language to connect with people. They're yeah. experts in, you know, sowing just you know small seeds of doubt that um can be quite difficult to overcome once that initial mistrust has been placed. So. By avoiding that discussion in the outset, you can actually end up with a whole host of additional problems later on. How can a person change from someone who vaccinates their child to someone who's become an anti-vaxxer? What processes? This brings into the whole question the, the story of vaccine damage, I guess. And, you know, there are some legitimate cases of vaccine damage where there are some genetic disorders, for example, where, you know, reactions to fever, yep. which could be due to the vaccine, but far more likely to occur as a result of the infection that the yep. vaccine is presenting, uh, protecting you from you know, can actually, you know, cause damage to different internal organs. There are some idiopathic reactions that can occur, you know, a one in millions of chance to actually happen. You know, it should be noted that the individual risk of also having something bad happen to you from catching measles is far greater, (laughs) even at the individual level, not just the herd immunity level. But, you know, vaccine damage, autism is a great example. Children, as they're growing up, a lot of things happen to kids as they're growing up, and a lot of things don't become apparent until a year, two years in, and often around the same time that we're vaccinating our children. So, uh, you know, autism is a great example. Mm. You can only really diagnose that a few years after. Usually it's around the same time that children are getting a couple of vaccinations. And parents are looking for answers. And when you've got people telling you that this is the answer, it's a very seductive theory. It actually helps you identify and pinpoint something that went wrong. Personally, I find this really quite outrageous because parents with autism are already going through so much stuff already to actually then throw the guilt that you actually did this by vaccinating your child I think is quite unethical but it is people are looking for answers and vaccines do give an answer so you know if you've got a child that's had a bowel obstruction so go vaccine damage if you've got a child that's developing eczema or asthma vaccine damage ADHD vaccine damage so a lot of the anti-vaccination groups are really good at identifying problems that children have and saying, look, you know, it's not your fault. You were told to do this. It was the vaccines that did this. If you stop vaccinating your child, they will become healthier and you'll be able to fix this eventually. What kinds of diseases have we seen making a comeback? Well, you know, Australia was declared measles-free not that long ago. And now we've seen outbreaks in Sydney, Perth. Very, I guess, topically, we saw even one of the One Nation ministers yeah. uh, catch measles um, the, 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 week after, yeah. <laughs> the week after Pauline Hanson told everyone not to worry about it. You know, these things do occur. And, and the reason they occur is because the concept of herd immunity really requires the vast majority of people to vaccinate. So it doesn't work when 50% of the people vaccinate. It doesn't work when 70% of the population vaccinates. You really need those levels above 90% to get true herd immunity and to protect people that can't vaccinate as well. There are some legitimate medical exemptions, but these children are unprotected or, you know, children that are too young to get vaccinations. You need that protection for them as well. The problem is it's not like a lot of issues where you just need majority support. You need Mm. vast majority support. It only takes 5% of the population to ruin it for everyone, basically. The people that are truly anti-vaccination, you'll never change their mind. But those fence sitters, you know, you need to get those three or four percent of people that are just sort of wavering on the fence and probably willing to actually move over to that vaccinated camp. John Wardle, Chancellor's Research Fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. In Australia, up to 45% of people will experience a mental health condition in their lifetime. 
That statistic comes from Beyond Blue, an NGO offering mental health services across Australia. For those who experience depression, there are a range of treatments on option, in the form of prescription medications, in the form of therapies, but these don't work for everybody. Research being undertaken at the University of Technology Sydney is looking at alternative treatments for depression that would target the gut in the form of probiotics. Catherine Burke from the School of Life Sciences and Lynette Roberts from the Discipline of Clinical Psychology at the University of Technology Sydney are at the forefront of this research. What's starting to happen in psychology lately is that we're really moving to more an idea of integrated health. So the idea that your physical health and your mental health are important and they influence each other. And I think that's where probiotics and gut is starting to come into it, where, you know, if you're on a highly processed diet, if you're really stressed, if you're taking a lot of antibiotics, that does affect the health of your gut. And we're also starting to see some cool research that the health of your gut then affects your mental health. So it's kind of a back and forth If your gut's healthy, your mind's healthy, so to speak. And you've been looking at, in this particular research, how certain probiotics react in the gut and and what sort of effects that might have on people who experience depression. Mm -hmm. One, what are probiotics? So probiotics are good bacteria. They're found in naturally fermented foods, so things like Greek yogurt, sauerkraut, fermented cheeses, so the soft cheeses like brie. They will have, you know, beautiful, good bacteria in it and they colonize well in your gut. And so what do probiotics have to do with this research in particular then? Yeah, so there's a lot of different research trying to assess exactly how probiotics helps the gut and how that helps your mood. But what we're particularly looking at in this clinical trial is we're seeing um, patients that do have symptoms of depression. We're giving them an eight-week course of probiotics. And then the idea is that for the half that are taking the probiotics versus half that are taking the placebo, we should see improvements in their mental health. So they should feel less depressed. And at the same time, we should also see improvements in their gut health. So it's not just that they're feeling better, it's correlated with improving the levels of good bacteria versus bad bacteria in your gut. And in these probiotics, is that in a capsule form? It's in sachets. So they're like little sachets and you just rip it open and mix it with a glass of water and you take it morning and night. But what's happening in the body? Like how, mm. how is there that connection between brain and gut? Is it yeah. a nervous system thing? What are we looking at? So maybe. So yeah. Kath and I, <laughs> we always have this discussion because... Um, Researchers still don't know entirely. So that's the kind of the ironic thing about it. We're still not quite sure. But our general understanding of what might be happening is one way is through kind of a stress pathway. So if we break it down, if we have a really high processed diet, if we're stressed, if we're taking a lot of antibiotics, what can happen is that that can inflame your gut. So it's like it's leaky. So it's like the toxins in your gut are leaking into your bloodstream. So it's like holes in a boat. And if you have all these kind of toxins floating around in your bloodstream, that can trigger all these effects through your body. So it can create a stress response and an inflammation response. So because of that response, it can affect the chemicals in your brain that are responsible for mood like serotonin. So it kind of has this I guess, this upscale effect from your gut towards your brain in a way. 
And what probiotics are meant to do is almost plug the holes in your gut because probiotics is good bacteria. It strengthens the lining of your gut. It reduces inflammation. It keeps it nice and healthy. So if you kind of plug in the holes in the gut, it has, a, I guess, a down-regulation effect. So all that other things that were being upscaled, it's now calming down, less stress, less inflammation, less impact on the chemicals in your brain that contribute to mood. But there's some really interesting experiments in rats where, mm. so I think they took germ-free rats, which is where they raise yeah, them yes. without any bacteria in their gut. And they notice that they have different stress responses and different levels of anxiety and they behave differently in all these sorts of behavioral tests. Yeah. And then when they colonize them with a probiotic, and I think it was a bifidobacterium bacteria, their behavior changes and they see decreased yeah. levels of sort of depressive behavior or anxious behavior. But when they cut the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that goes directly from from the gut to your brain, then they got rid of that response and the bacteria didn't help anymore. And so that's, I think there's more than one pathway, but mm. that's an example of one sort of direct link between the brain and the gut where signaling can occur. Sorry, when you just mm. said when they cut that certain connection, that meant that the probiotic had no effect. That's right. Yeah, lost its effect. So I guess it lost its communication link to the brain with whatever the signal was that it was sending. It couldn't get there anymore. <sighs> Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. For the people who are involved in the clinical trial, coming to the end of it, what is the purpose here? Is it mm. to figure out how probiotics might work for people who experience depression as some sort of, not going to say cure, but as some mm. sort of way of dealing with the experience of depression? Is that is mm. that ultimately the end goal here? or? A little bit. So there's a few different goals. I think the major goal is, can we offer another tool for depression? So depression is very common. It's about one in six, one in seven um, people will experience it across their lifetime. It just depends on which figures you're looking at. But, but it's common. It's you know your friends, it's family, it's people you know. And we have really good treatments. So we've got psychological therapies, we've got antidepressants, and they work, but they don't work for everybody. Um, there can be side effects for antidepressants. Therapy can be expensive and time-consuming. And, and there is just a minority that won't respond to the current treatments. So given that depression is so complex, there's a lot of factors that contribute to it. Having one more possible treatment to add to that, whether it's in combination with those other treatments or as a standalone treatment, I think will be really beneficial. And a lot of the feedback we get from participants is that they're looking for a natural alternative, one that's more in line with, I guess, their lifestyle and their values. And so people are really responding to this idea of physical and mental health and taking a natural fermented product that could possibly help their mood. What is the scope for more of this research taking place, looking at this relationship between what might be happening in the gut and what might be happening in the brain? Yeah. But I think one thing we're particularly looking at is extending the research further and looking at whether probiotics enhances the effects of other treatments for depression. So, for example, psychological therapy and taking a probiotic and seeing if you get more of a boost. And then in conjunction, also taking more biomarkers of, um, say, blood, urine, and looking at different kind of indicators in the body so we can start to like we've been saying, get more of an idea about the pathways. So not just seeing a treatment effect, but what's happening beneath that. So we've already doing some really interesting things in terms of the stool samples and looking at the microbiome, which is going to be amazing. Um, but we also, if we can look at what's happening in the blood, what's happening in the urine, that can paint a fuller picture of what's actually happening over the course of treatment. So I think that's kind of the next step. And then who knows? I mean, there's some really interesting ideas out there. And I mean, for me, one of the most interesting studies that I read was where they took 
they so took, depressed rats. They took stool <laughs> samples from depressed people and they transferred the microbiota into the into some germ-free rats and those rats became depressed. Yes. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm not. That's Very terrible sad. but fascinating. I know. <laughs> That's what we think too. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, they also had a control group where they took people who were not depressed and transferred that microbiota mm. and those rats did not get depressed. Wow. But, so there really is an effect. And whether that's the thing, you know, I, I think it's unlikely that that's the one thing that will mm. kick off depression, that you've got mm. the wrong bacteria there, but it's certainly a contributing factor mm. and something that can, yeah. can play a role. Catherine Burke from the School of Life Sciences and Lynette Roberts from the Discipline of Clinical Psychology at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash think health. If you have any questions after today's show, go see your GP. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favorite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company. <laughs>